Welcome to the podcast of The Table of Minneapolis Church. We are a community that is committed to practicing the ways of Jesus by creating space for all to belong and be loved. Our hope is that in this podcast, in the message that you will hear, that you'll be reminded again of the eternal truth that no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, the places that you've gone or the places that you've stayed, that there will always be a seat here for you at the table. For you're a child of God, and beloved, you belong. Enjoy this week's message. We did it. We are now entering into the message portion of this program. I'm running on about two hours of sleep tonight. Uh, that's, that's, oh gosh. Jerome, are we going to be okay? I don't know. You were scared of the ghost story. And you were snoring and I wasn't sleeping. So what's your point? <laughs> we're in a series right now called Greater Than. Uh, it's based off a text in John 14, 12, where Jesus is at this moment where he's gathered with his friends. He has a few hours left and he looks back on his life. And as all of his friends are breaking down and they're leaning in on Jesus and they're saying, what are we going to do when you're gone? Like the whole thing falls apart if you are not here. He said, well, here's the thing. If you thought what I did in 32, 33 years was good, if you thought this was something, then brace yourself. Because there is a people who are coming, who are going to take on my path and enter into my purpose And they're going to be able to take this story much further than I was ever able to do so. They will move in me and I will move through them. And the world will become more whole, healed, and beautiful with every inch that we go. The people that he spoke about on that evening 2,000 years ago was, was you and me. All of us who are choosing to proactively pursue the ways of Jesus and actually practicing them, not merely professing them, that's who he had in mind when he spoke about that dream, with that longing anticipation, with the, the comfort of his friends saying, I know you're going to miss this, but brace yourself. Because there are those who are coming who will do far greater things than the things that you are seeing that I've done. They're going to take the story further. Now, this is written in John's gospel. In John's gospel, these things that, that Jesus is referring to are the seven signs Seven, the number of totality, the number of completion. John lays out seven signs that point to a fuller story. Seven signs that point to an invitation for a path. And so we're spending this entire series going through these seven signs. Last week we entered into John 2 and we looked at the water to wine story in Cana. Tonight we're going into John 4, sign 2. Um, And here's the story. It begins like this. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. On my two-hour drive home from the cabin this morning... um, after being with these guys, let me show you a photo. I'll show it to you again later. But look how good looking these guys are, huh? No showers or anything, and they just shimmer. But anyways, on the two-hour drive home from the cabin this weekend, um, I was trying to think about what is the thing that I should be talking about tonight. Like, that's where I, f- I don't know for you if it's just a me thing, but that tends to be where I best connect with self, best connect with the spirit, 
and I'm actually able to grasp some semblance of clarity of thought every now and then. Today, when I thought about this text and the story inside of it, I thought about Jesus in Capernaum, but even more so, I thought about this dad, the dad with the son who is sick. John says that there was a royal official whose son got sick. Now, when he's saying that to you, that's saying a lot of things, because if you know anything about this time and the place and the hierarchy of society, Jesus of peasant class doesn't mix or mingle with somebody like a royal official of the powerful class. They are isolated. This is tribalism 101. The powerful are exploiting the poor. They're not going out for drinks. They're not spending time together. We don't know much about this man. We don't know if he was a part of the Roman military or we don't know if he was just one of King Herod's right-hand men. We, we really just don't know enough about him. But the little that we do know about him is that there's separation in his life between his and Jesus' life. They don't cross paths. They have no reason to cross paths. They have no reason to try to cultivate a friendship until this one morning. When this dad in Capernaum wakes up and his son has a fever. And he can tell that it's bad. And immediately he laces up his Jordans and he runs from Capernaum to Cana, 16 miles uphill in Middle East air, hot, humid, sticky, like you're breathing through a sweater. And he's sprinting the entire way on the off chance that this peasant rabbi that he heard whispers about might be able to do something about his son who's about to die. He really doesn't have much to go off of either. Like I said earlier, this is sign number two. Sign number one was just a party trick. It's where Jesus turned water into wine. But that doesn't, you don't look at that and go like, oh, I suppose if he can do that, he surely can save my son from dying. That's not where logic would lead you. But this man is so desperate that he starts sprinting all the way, 16 miles from Capernaum to Canaan. The desperation of dads. I, I, yeah, just reading this now, I'm thinking about um, my uncle. Well, I'm thinking about my cousin. My cousin Josh is an incredible young man. Um, he was born with some incredibly diff difficult obstacles. He only has partial earing, hearing in his ears. And um, three or four years ago, he was diagnosed with Usher syndrome, which means that he'll lose all of his sight. And so he is young, he's in his 20s, and yet every day the world gets a little bit darker. And when we first found out about Josh's condition, and we first started to put the pieces together of what the rest of his story was going to look like, I've never seen a dad run 16 miles uphill as fast as his dad did that day. I, I've never seen a man go so quickly all out trying to figure out where is Cana so I can find my cure? My uncle David has given thousands upon thousands of dollars to foundations on the off chance that maybe they might be able to figure something out. He is waking up every morning at 4.30 and 5 and going to the church to pray, to beg out of some hope that God will intervene and do something about this. He is trying everything and anything somehow to intervene because that's what dads do. That's what moms do. Your baby is sick, and so you have to go and sprint. You have to go find Cana, find the cure, and make the pain stop. 
That's what we do when our kids are sick. But as I was driving home tonight, I was recognizing that while that's true by and large, and when it's true, it's beautiful. But not every sickness out there makes us sprint. There are some kinds of sicknesses that we see in our kids that instead of going out and looking for a cure, we settle down and we get complacent with. It makes it even harder is that for those who do go and try to find a cure, they're more angry with you naming the sickness than they are with you trying to find an end to it. This dad goes to Jesus and he says, I don't know much about you, but from what I do know, even if it's just a little bit, I need you to come back with me to Capernaum because my boy is not all right. And I want to pick up where he left off tonight and say the same thing. There's something about our boys that is not all right. There's something in the air that we breathe that is toxic to the bodies of our boys. And there is not enough parents out there sprinting to say something about this. There are too many people who are silent about it. But some people are speaking up. I want you to watch this. Is this the best a man can get? Is it? We can't hide from it. It's been going on far too long. We can't laugh it off. Who's the daddy? <laughs> what I actually think she's trying to say. Making the same old excuses. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. But something finally changed. Allegations regarding sexual assault and sexual harassment. And there will be no going back. Because we. We believe in the best in men. Men need to hold other men accountable. Smile, sweetie. Come on. To say the right thing. To act the right way. Bro, not cool, not cool. Some already are. In ways big. Yo, men. And small. I am strong. I am strong. But some is not enough. So how we treat each other, okay? Okay. Because the boys watching today will be the men of tomorrow. It is a powerful clip, and, and I think we know that because there's been a lot of reactions to it. Um, but it's trying to stand up and say that we have a problem and we need to talk about it. That there is a sickness in the air, and there are some symptoms that show that it is so. I want to just read with you a few of these that we started to look at this weekend as guys. Um, 
some of these symptoms that are eye-dropping. Eye-dropping, is that a word, Debbie? The jaw drops. The eyes stay intact. Eye-opening? Not jaw-opening. Okay. Whatever this sickness is, whatever language we want to use for it, here are a few of the symptoms that are showing up right now in the bodies of our boys. Boys today are two times more likely than girls to fail out of school and four times more likely to be expelled. Between 2001 and 2012, there were 2,000 U.S. troops who were killed in Afghanistan. Over the same period of time, there were 12,000 American women who were killed by their boyfriends or their husbands. As of 2014, males were four times more likely to commit suicide than their female counterparts. Men make up 79% of all suicides in this country. Out of the 12 million single-parent households in the U.S., in 2014, they found out that 83% of those single households were being led by one mom. The dads were all gone. And perhaps the one that's most pertinent to many of the things that we talk about, when we look at mass shootings and violence, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we tend to look at these different pieces and we name, well, they're all white people behind it, or we, we look at the gun, all very important things to look at. The one common denominator behind all of it is that they're all men. We don't look at that, though. We don't name that as much. What is happening? What is in the air? And as I said earlier, the hardest part for me is that when we try to speak about this, the most disheartening piece is that it's not... The thing that is most offensive is, is not the, the offering of a cure, but the naming of the sickness altogether. This film that I just showed you from Gillette it has been viewed 35 million times. One point five million people of all the millions who have watched this, who saw these voices saying, we can be better than just brainless men who are out to dominate all, who use men or women as objects, who exploit, pillage, steal, do whatever we please, who, who love violence and run out. We can do better. And 1.5 million people have said, like, you shouldn't even be talking about that. To stand up and say something about that is actually not okay. I have a friend that's one of these people. I don't know if he actually went to YouTube and clicked the thumbs down, but he reached out to me and, and he said, um, yeah, I, I hated that Gillette commercial. I hated that Gillette commercial. And here's my why. I hated that everything that I was told to be, everything that I was raised up to be, stoic and strong, go get the girl, stand up for yourself and punch back, do what you need to do to get the job done. Everything that I was told to be is now a problem based on what I've become. And as much as everybody's condemning me for the masculinity through which I live inside of, not one person has offered me a better way to be. Now, one person has come at me and said, this is another version, a wider way to walk into your manhood than the one that you are presently constrained inside of. And he has a point. 
We talked about this this weekend, but if you think about patriarchy as a whole and you think about how it runs on this idea that only men are capable of running the world and how men, they, they're not victim number one inside of that system. We tend to see it only as the perks that they profit off of from it and how women have been, have been belittled, objectified, how they've been limited, how they've been oppressed and how the LGBTQ has even been more so oppressed. You, men are not victims number one. But when you have a system like this that is clearly oppressing certain individuals, the people who have been pushed down have spent the last 200 years trying to figure out what does it look like for us to stand back up. So you've had women's liberation movements that have talked about what does it mean to be a woman? How do we actually gain the next itch? The womanism movement did the exact same thing. Civil rights, LGBT. All of these different movements that are beautifully trying to ask better questions of their own humanity for the sake of gaining another inch of progress. And it's all wonderful. There are still obstacles in place. There are still things that need to be removed if we're going to actually see justice for all manifest. But while all of these conversations have been happening, there's a script that's gone missing. We've talked about what it looks like to be a different version of woman. We've talked about what it looks like to be more proud as an LGBT person. We've yet to talk about what it looks like to be more rooted and integrous as a man. We don't have a definition for what that looks like. And so what happens then is though we may decry systems of patriarchy, we still are uplifting masculine ideals. Have you noticed that? I remember Lauren and I were talking about this a few years ago when you had the Boy Scouts. There's a lot of parents that were coming out and they're naming how our girls, they don't fit like inside of Girl Scouts. They're more rough and tumble was the language they used a lot in the news. And they said they'd like to be in Boy Scouts. After much deliberation and conversation, they ended up making that happen. They made that accessible for girls to go into Boy Scouts. And that is celebrated, that is beautiful, but nobody said, can boys go to Girl Scouts? Like if you're somebody like me who, who doesn't naturally fit onto a court or a field, I'd rather write or read or play music. Like the, I, I'm not like the, the rough and tumble. Like can I go and focus on those things? If, if, we're, if we're doing that, like is that a part of the conversation? It's a one-way street. In the same way where if you have women politicians who take on these more masculine ideals, we call them badass. But if you are a man who takes on more feminine ideals, we call them broken. We have yet to give men a wider script to walk in and we need to do so because it's embedded in the Jesus story. It is amazing if you look at the life of Jesus, how far of a cry it is from the life of the modern man how much it invites us into a place of empathy, how much it refuses to participate in these power struggles, how much it looks down upon violence, how connected it is with how it feels, how he feels. I'm not connected with how I feel anymore. You know, I speak about this from a very, um, Uh, this weekend with these guys, if you think about it contextually, how beautiful and rare of a thing it is to have men coming together, asking one another, 
Questions like Jeff asked us last night, like, do you remember being bullied? Do you remember being a bully? Do you remember when you first learned that crying was just for girls? When is the last time that you cried? Did your dad have close friends? Or was your dad only friends with your mom's wife's husband's? Do you have relational intimacy? You know, we, guys, we got together and it's this beautiful space. Overwhelming, actually. I saved my tears for the car ride home today. Didn't do it once in front of these guys. We have to figure out how we do this together. This is, is not just a, 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 a man's issue because it's impacting us all. There's a sickness in the air and there are symptoms on the surface. And everybody is being impacted by this. This man from Capernaum with the sick son, he's a man of power and control. He is a man who, who gets what he wants. When he says jump, everybody else says how high. He comes to Jesus in Cana and he says, Jesus, come. Uh, I need you to come back and fix my son. But Jesus doesn't go. He says to him more or less, you need to lose your script of how you want this to be so that you can finally enter into how it needs to be. You, you don't have full control. Richard Rohr, he has this beautiful quote when I think about this particular subject that I think is so pertinent. We don't think ourselves into a new way of living, we live ourselves into a new way of thinking. What will that look like for us as a community, men and women alike? To live more genderful, to look for the fullness of our humanity and not be limited by these cultural scripts that we were raised inside of. What will that look like for you? Because not one of us hasn't been infected by it. It's touched all of us in different ways. My, my own father included. Uh, I, we had my dad's 60th birthday last week, and it was awesome. And I love my dad. And, um, you know, I remember being so proud of my dad growing up. I remember going to my uh, middle school, always carrying my dad's letters that he got from different NFL teams. They wanted him to come and try out and be a part of their team. He was like, that was my dad. And while my dad is the Swedish waterfall who is always crying, that's, that's kind of his thing, he still grew up as a man in America. He still grew up as a son of a military man who he didn't even get to meet his dad until he was two years old. Still grew up with the same script. But when I was able to pause last week, I saw something beautiful inside of the story that my dad gave me that I think paints some kind of an invitation for all of us as we move forward. One, not of perfection, but participation in a better way. And here's what I saw. When I think about my dad, there's one moment that came to mind. And it was when I was playing baseball. I shared it with the boys this weekend, but I was playing baseball. And um, I know it's going to shock you because, you, Matt, you're not scared of anything. Like, you're a fearless warrior type man. Well, believe it or not, you throw the high cheese my way, I'm going to have an issue, okay? 
So what I would do is I would stand up at the bat, okay? Debbie, you paying attention? Steve Manning, by the way, your man. Not that this is about, like, you know, three home runs yesterday in baseball. <laughs> but what I would do is I would pull my leg while swinging, and the ball would be way over there because I was scared of that high cheese every time. My dad, instructionally, like, would be in my corner and saying, like, you know, if you want to make contact every now and then, you're going to have to stay in the back. Like, that's, a, that's part of being a baseball player. It, that would help. And um, I'll never forget playing this game at Sitzer Park where I stood up to the plate, and my dad was sitting in the front row behind me, and I did that. I, I, I wanted to keep my foot in there, but I didn't keep my foot in there, and I pulled it, and I turned around, and I caught my dad like... I don't know if it was shame or anger or frustration, but just shaking his head and kind of looking at the ground. Because that's, we want our boys to perform, produce, be strong. Later that night, I was in bed and I was thinking about that. And it was bothering me when I heard this knock on my door and it was my dad. And he walked in and he got on his knees next to my bed and he started crying. And he said, I'm so sorry. That's, that's not who I want to be. I don't know why I reacted like that, but whether you hit a home run or you strike out, you are loved, you are enough. And I'm in your corner every time. The reason why a lot of men don't talk about these things is because we think about how we have treated our own kids and ourselves, and there's so much shame. We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for an awareness. We recognize where are we operating by false scripts, where there's a truer and wider path of health and healing that we're being invited upon. I want to close with this clip. Um, it's from Bruce. You know Bruce, the boss. And there's this moment in the Bruce from Broadway that has been on my mind. And in a lot of ways, it's very tied specific to this conversation. And we think about the sickness in our boys. And we think about that desire to leave Capernaum and go to Cana and find a cure. To gain another inch in this conversation. And this thing right here, it's not only made me think about my own dad and the ancestral role that he's played in my life. But I think it's the role that we play in one another's lives as we take on all the toxic conditioning that we're all subjected to. Watch this clip. All right, this is uh, the final days of Patty's first pregnancy. I receive a surprise visit from my father at my home in LA. Now he'd driven 500 miles unannounced to knock on my door. That's his style. So at 11 a.m. we sit sunlit dining room and we're nursing morning beers. That's his style. <laughs> it's my father's breakfast of champions. When my dad, never a talkative man, right, blurted out, you've been very good to us. And I nodded that, that I had, you know. And, uh, and he says, and I wasn't very good to you. And the room just stood still. As to my shock, the unacknowledgeable was being acknowledged. If I, 
If I didn't know better, I would have sworn an apology of some sort was being made. And it was. Here in the last days, before I was to become a father, my own father was visiting me to warn me of the mistakes that he had made and to warn me not to make them with my own children. To release them from the chain of our sins, my father's and mine and our father's before, that they may be free to make their own choices and to live their own lives. We are ghosts or we are ancestors in our children's lives. We either lay our mistakes, our burdens upon them, and we haunt them, or we assist them in laying those old burdens down and we free them from the chain of our own flawed behavior. And as ancestors, we walk alongside of them and we assist them in finding their own way and some transcendence. My father, on that day, was petitioning me for an ancestral role in my life after being a ghost for a long, long time. He wanted me to write a new end to our relationship and he wanted me to be ready for the new beginning that I was about to experience. It was the greatest moment in my life with my dad. And it May we be the kind of community that lives into our ancestral calling, where no matter the boundary lines of the cultural scripts and conditioning they may lie, that we would reach across the aisle internally and externally, to lift the burdens off of ourselves so that we may be free, that we may be healed, and we may become healers. Amen? Amen. Thanks, Matt. For coming off of a weekend away and saying, I got nothing, you had something. Um, so many thoughts going through my mind, but what struck me the most is that isn't this why we follow Jesus? It's exactly why Jesus came. Because Jesus came to turn power systems up upside down and Jesus came to call us to be better, to be greater than, to be a better version. And that's what we get to do together. When Matt was talking, I was thinking about how often Steve and I will think, gosh, we're that much healthier than our parents were. And we see this beauty in our kids. They get it that much more than we do. And that all comes to this faith and something greater going on. And so when we gather together on Sunday nights, we're pursuing that, aren't we? What do we talk about? A community practicing the ways of Jesus. And one of the ways we do that is when we gather on Sunday nights and we take part in communion. And when we take part in communion, we are claiming this God is, as Lord of our life. But the Lord of our life that makes us cross boundaries 
like that official did when he sought Jesus out. I was also thinking about, gosh, when the rubber hits the road, if that's a saying, Matt. Um, like this official must have felt. All those things fall away. Power doesn't really matter anymore, does it? So we invite you to take part in the bread and the cup. The night before Jesus died, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you when you drink from this cup. Remember me. I think about Jesus setting himself aside and suffering and dying on a cross um, for us. And I think that's what we're talking about tonight is setting ourselves aside. Breaking down power systems. During the music, please come forward. We have people in the front with gluten-free elements, regular elements on the side. And together, let's stand and pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not to temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power 